Hi, and welcome to the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust. Today, I have another guest to interview, and we're going to be talking about the pre-Socratics. My guest this week is Professor Malcolm Schofield of Cambridge University. Hi, Malcolm. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. So we've already covered a lot of the pre-Socratics, or really all the pre-Socratics, in previous episodes. So this episode is just kind of to wrap things up. And I thought I might start by asking you a little bit about the very first pre-Socratics, the Milesians. So one question that arises here, I suppose, is what do the Milesians all have in common? So if we think about Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes, do you think that there's one feature or several features which binds them together and makes them a kind of school of pre-Socratic philosophy? Well, I think there are two or three features that, uh, that, that unite them. Perhaps start, start with uh, Thales and Anaximander. One thing that is reported about Thales is that he was an enormously inventive, practical person. Uh, and uh, he's supposed, for example, to have uh, used uh, elementary mathematics, elementary geometry, to make uh, uh, calculations and uh, uh, indeed to have uh, accurately, more or less, predicted an eclipse. Anaximander, likewise, seems to have been keen on inventing gadgets, and uh, he too is interested in the mathematical. He's, he's said to have been the first Greek ever to draw a map of the world, and it seems to have been a, a primitive map uh, uh, constructed with uh, compasses. Uh, so the, the, the world is round, or the earth is round, and the Mediterranean's at the centre, and you've got uh, Europe above and, uh, and uh, Africa below and Asia on the right. Uh, at least so it seems. So that's one thing. They, they, they were people who had, if you like, a, a sort of technological cast of mind. Uh, second thing uh, that seems to be true of them is that uh, they were trying to generate... Um, a, a, an explanation of how the physical cosmos is the way it is that was couched entirely in naturalistic terms. Uh, the whole uh, array of gods and goddesses, uh, the fates, the, the mythology of the underworld and so forth that uh, you, you find in the epic poets Homer and Hesiod. Uh, uh, and you find in them as, as it were a framework for explanation of why the cosmos is, that's all gone. And would you say that that's what really differentiates the pre-Socratic philosophers from other cultural productions, as it were, that happened before the pre-Socratics and during the pre-Socratics own lifetimes, that they were more naturalistic? Well, we, uh, of course, uh, in, in their own lifetime, we have very little other contemporary Greek material. Uh, there is uh, the uh, material from the Near East and from Egypt and, and so forth. And yes, it, the, the, what we have of uh, Babylonian Egyptian narratives are, are much more, if you like, theistic, explicitly theistic. Not uh, that uh, Thales, Anaximander and Anaximenes uh, didn't believe in deities. They, they clearly did, but their deities are more like, to use a much later phrase, the god of all the philosophers than the, the traditional 
Greek, the, the traditional pantheon or the, the traditional polytheism that you find throughout the Mediterranean and Near East in this period. And it's really Xenophanes who really brings that point across most clearly. Yes, Xenophanes is a, is a fascinating character. He's also someone who works on the what is now the eastern seaboard of Turkey, as they all did. Um, his home city, Colophon, was uh, only a few kilometres away from Miletus, where, where the, Miles the Milesians worked. Uh, uh, and he stands in a very interesting relationship to the, the Milesians. Uh, he was clearly knowledgeable about uh, natural philosophy. In, indeed, um, some of the most interesting things we know um, about physical speculation from this period is Xenophanes. For example, he seems to have been aware of what fossil evidence might be. The shellfish. The shellfish, yeah. yes, the bay leaf. And uh, to construct it on that, a theory uh, uh, about uh, the, the, the way that the earth is gradually drying out. And that maps on to some concerns that are documented for Anaximander. And, and he certainly has um, physical explanations of uh, uh, why the earth is as it is, why the heavens are as they are, and so on. Um, it, it, uh, in some ways, it doesn't seem as sophisticated as we can document for the Milesians. And there's a question as to whether there was an element of satire in it. As an often he said, well, everything's made of clouds. And that uh, is not unlike the, the physical explanations in terms of uh, heat and moisture and so forth that, uh, that the Milesians invoked. Um, but you can't help suspecting that he perhaps had his tongue in his cheek a bit. But Xenophanes is interesting because um, he is explicitly concerned with uh, theology. And indeed, he's, um, he, he seems to operate in a different mode from the Milesians. Um, the the Milesian, those of the Milesians who wrote anything, and it seems almost certain that Anaximander and Anaximenes did write books, they wrote their books as uh, narratives um, in prose of how the world began and how it developed. In Xenophanes' case, he writes verse. In fact, he's a, a poetic performer who travels, as he says, the Greek world. Indeed, uh, after his... Um, uh, uh, early years, he seems to have moved to the west of Greece, to uh, South Italy, mainly. To perform at banquets, as it were. To perform at banquets, and indeed we have some of the poems he wrote about how what a proper banquet should be like, and what the right religious rituals should be, what the right songs you could sing, uh, you should sing are. And he, and he, and he's very, he seems to be very much against um, elaborate meat sacrifices, and... Um, and uh, songs of uh, gods and giants battling against each other. Um, and he, but he has, very interestingly, a critique of traditional theology. Homer and Hesiod are accused of anthropomorphism um, and indeed of uh, attributing to the gods the worst features of, of humankind. Um, and he has, uh, he develops this critique um, by... Um, a sort of counterfactual line of thought. Um, if he says, if um, if lions could uh, tell us, could draw their gods, then they would draw lion-faced um, gods. gods, just as the Ethiopians draw uh, uh, devise gods who have black faces and snub-nosed. 
that that issue about the kind of text that they produce, so books as opposed to poetry, brings me to something else I was going to ask you, which is, do you think we can say very much about who the pre-Socratics thought they were talking to? I mean, Xenophanes may have been performing at banquets at least some of the time, but for example, Heraclitus or even the poem of Parmenides, or for that matter, the Milesians, do you think there's any sign that could tell us who they were talking to and who they expected to be able to read their books? Or do we just have to guess about that? Well, uh, like so much to do with the pre-Socratics, it is mostly guesswork, I think. Um, the, there is quite a lot of reason to think that uh, Thales, in particular, was a public figure. I mean, he, he's supposed to have uh, generated ideas for a, um, uh, a conference of all the Greek states on the eastern seaboard to, uh, to, to, to make common cause together against the, the Persian overlord. The Woodrow Wilson of pre-Socratic philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> you could say so, yes. And so I, I think, uh, I, I think the Thales had a, uh, a public role, and and I, I'm quite sure that he, um, he would talk to uh, authoritatively to anybody who wanted to listen to him. So I don't think we have to think that uh, he was writing only for a small coterie of intellectuals. And Eximander and Eximander so is harder to say, but um, uh, the Greek cities weren't very big places, and um, uh, and so I, I think that there, uh, uh, even though there does seem to have been a kind of school developed of, of Miletus, um, we we mustn't think of it as a university. I think we 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 must think much more in terms of public intellectuals. And that means that actually the pre-Socratics may have been operating in a mode maybe more like Socrates, actually speaking to people in the marketplace, as it were, and maybe some of Heraclitus's riddles or aphorisms were actually presented to people in that kind of more oral context. It, it, it's hard to think that Heraclitus wasn't primarily someone who uh, was operating through oral discourse, um, not primarily on, on paper or papyrus or whatever it was. I mean, clearly there, there was a book, um, uh, but his his thoughts uh, do, do seem the kinds of uh, phrased in the kind of way that uh, oral utterances are phrased. And similarly, um, well, any anybody who writes a poem, you 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 have to assume that they're that they're, they're writing it for delivery. Even even Parmenides, I think. So even Parmenides would have been performing the with a way of well truth. again Parmen give us the way of truth again pa Parmenides. Parmenides is is uh, I mean the the evidence about Parmenides and his, and his uh, pupil sidekick Zeno in uh, Elia in in uh, South Italy being um, public figures is quite good, um, and uh, so I. Uh, I, I think that the Parmenides poem must be a distillation of his teaching, but um, it, it's 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 hard to think that um, he simply retired to his study alone one day uh, after um, uh, not talking to anybody for years, writing it down and then shutting the book and um, leaving it somewhere and going off somewhere else. It's it's not really credible, I think. And in fact, in Plato's Parmenides. It looks like the dialogue begins just as Zeno has finished reciting from his book, doesn't it? And Socrates that's asks right. him what the book is about. That's right. I mean, that's it. one of our. I mean, it's it's uh, 
it, it, it's a narrative that can't possibly literally be true, but what what it testifies to is the uh, is the kind of way in which ideas were spread. People would come and read from their books. And of course, Parmenides is a nice example for us of a philosopher who seems actually to have had disciples. So there's Zeno, obviously, and there's also Melissus, and the two yeah. of them seem to have been extending Parmenides' yes. philosophy or defending it in some way. That's right. I mean, uh, uh, it's quite hard to understand the relationship of Zeno and Melissus to, uh, uh, philosophically, that's to say, to, to, to Parmenides, and um, Zeno... Zeno is often portrayed as a sort of sophist, and um, Melissus, there's been some interesting work recently that suggests that maybe Melissus, um, some of his arguments are designed to provoke rather than to, as it were, communicate um, metaphysical truths that um, we, we were simply meant to take on board and, uh, and accept. Um, and uh, and whether that's true or not with respect to Zeno and Melissus, it's it's very hard to think of them as except as operating in a milieu in in which people were arguing with each other all the time, and they were sort of adopting a Parmenides type position. Is that the idea? That's right. That's right. And um, I mean, it's uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, and the, the thought is, if, if this is right, the right way to think of them, um, uh, trying to provoke others to thought in, in what you might describe as a Socratic sort of way. That's interesting because when I interviewed Emma McCabe in a previous episode about Heraclitus, this is exactly what she said about him, that a lot of these aphorisms, which seem almost like jokes or one-liners, are actually implicit invitations to engage in some kind of dialogue with him. Well, that is absolutely right. I mean, take um, uh, um, a, a famous fragment of, of Heraclitus, um, which I'm actually going to, I think, make the opening sally when I when I give the, the presidential lecture to the Hellenic Society next summer. The saying goes... Here in London, yes. The saying goes like this. I own... I own means something like... The, uh, human life is a child uh, playing around, playing drafts. Uh, a child's is the kingdom. Hmm. Now, what on earth he meant, who knows? But it was for sure that he meant us to uh, puzzle about it. It's supposed to be provocative, and it is. <laughs> it, it certainly is. So if we can go back to the philosophers who come in the wake of Parmenides. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would be too simplistic to see the generation or two now leading up to the time of Socrates, so not really pre-Socratics anymore, but even Socrates' contemporaries, do you think it would be too simplistic to think of them as just different attempts to find a way to defend pluralism against Parmenides? So you've got the Atomists, you've got Anaxagoras, you've got Empedocles, and they all have multiple principles, either an infinity of atoms or four elements or whatever it might be, the mixture of all things with each other. Are these all just different ways to outwit Parmenides and avoid his kind of total monism? Well, I think uh, we probably have to tell a slightly different story with re respect to each of them, because I think one thing that our conversation is, has been bringing out is um, what an extraordinary 
diversity of of views and uh, approaches to uh, to to abstract thought um, the, these thinkers engage in, um, uh, or that we we find in these thinkers, um, and so I, I think there's something broadly correct in in the suggestion that. Um, well, they, they used to be called the post pominidian pluralists, um, rather alliterative, alliteratively, and uh, post pominidian uh, encapsulated the idea that you you've just articulated that um, that in one way or another they're trying to save pluralism from uh, pominidian monism and the arguments that pominides had deployed. Uh, but I do think there are differences. If we take um, and one of the differences is actually the evidence. Um, the evidence we have for um, the atomists is, in some ways, uh, in some ways, it's a lot more plentiful than for the others, but it's also more indirect. And uh, in other words, we have very few fragments of the physical system of Leucippus and Democritus. Uh, and the reports that we have by later writers about about the atomists are absolutely explicit that they were offering, in a way, a version of Parmenidianism. They were saying, uh, well, Parmenides is absolutely right that reality is single and it's homogeneous uh, uh, and uh, uh, it's... Um, uh, it's full of uh, that reality is a full reality there are no gaps in it um, the, the only variation they really make is to say but there is not being as well which they, they then talk of as void the, the empty um, and from that they can generate their whole theory but the, uh, uh, they're not actually in, in the sources represented so much as pluralists as dualists dualists who say there has to be both reality if you like and unreality uh, and that and, and it's through a complex um, interchange between these that, that that you you get the diversity that uh, we find in, in in the sensible world and then atomism could almost just be permanent in philosophy where you disagree with Zeno and say that it is possible for being to be separated from other being, so that one atom is separate from another that's atom right. by non-being. That's right. And you get an that's atomistic right. universe. Right. But they're very keen to insist that the the the, um, the 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 reality that's as it were divorced from reality in this way is a single reality, um, and that's the sense in which they the, the the sources represent them as dualists rather than, than a dualism between uh, like being and non-being um, rather than pluralists. It's interesting, isn't it, that we the way we periodize this period, because we call them all pre-Socratics, mm. as if the really fundamental thing that happens in Greek philosophy is Socrates coming along yeah. and changing the game somehow. <laughs> we could maybe talk instead about pre-Parmenidians and post-Parmenidians. Yes. But is it is there any sense in which it's legitimate to think of Socrates as having changed philosophies so that all the pre-Socratics, in some sense, are... They form a single tradition, which Socrates brings to an end, maybe by being more interested in ethics than natural philosophy, for example. Well, I think uh, the, the, these very sharp divisions are always a bit dangerous because it's quite clear that somebody like Heraclitus was had 
um, uh, a strong ethical strain in his teaching. And even Democritus has ethical practice. Even Democritus, but Democritus, I mean, that brings, that relates to another of your points, namely that Democritus is actually quite a bit younger than Socrates. Right. He's probably 30 years younger than Socrates. Would be surprised to be told he was a (laughs) pre-Socratic. That's right. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I think Socrates, well, famously, Cicero said Socrates called philosophy down from the heavens and brought it into our homes. And um, the, uh, the, the, that's true in a couple of ways, I think. One is um, the focus on ethics, but also, if you like, the focus on homeliness, because I think what's absolutely different about Socrates from any of these previous people is the way that Socrates' conversations seem to begin with um, the purely everyday. I mean, the Republic, for example, the beginning of the Republic, famously begins with a conversation between him and the old man Kephlos, and um, it's polite conversation. He asks questions that we don't ordinarily ask in polite conversations. Well, how's the sex life, old boy? And Kephras says, well, I'm rather glad not to have got any of that. And um, and how are you feeling about the prospect of death? Well, he's not afraid of death because he says, I've, I've, um, I've paid my debts and I've always told the truth. And, and Socrates then engineers that into a conversation about justice. Um, so you're, is that what you think living a just life that you means that you won't be um, subject to post-mortem punishment um, adds up to? Um, now, I don't think there is any sense with any of the previous people that we've been talking about that there was this kind of ordinary life uh, dimension to, to philosophy as they saw it. Uh, and this was something that later writers about Socrates uh, emphasised. You mm-hmm. find this in Xenophon, for example, you find it in Plutarch, that they emphasised this, um, uh, uh, if you like, demotic side to um Socrates' way of doing philosophy. Um, all comers, uh, any subject whatsoever, can be turned into a philosophical subject. Well, thank you very much, Malcolm, for coming and bringing the pre Socratics into the homes of the listeners. Next week, I'll be talking about the Hippocratic corpus, and in a few weeks, we'll be getting to Socrates himself. But for now, I'll just thank Malcolm one more time. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. And I hope you'll listen next week again to the history of philosophy without any gaps. Thank you.